Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is a special edition of Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. In the early 1980s, the medical world was baffled as a new infectious disease began to spread. Unfortunately, the cause of AIDS remains unknown. But uh, over the past year and a half, when the first cases were investigated, a large amount has been learned about the epidemiologic characteristics of the AIDS cases. Well, and a lot has changed since then. Decades later, there have been tremendous strides that have been made. And now, the United Nations has a goal to end AIDS by 2030. But they also warn there are global inequities that are hindering the progress. And our question is, well, what about here in the United States? And also, later in the program, we'll address addressing stigmas and how faith leaders can engage communities to support vulnerable populations. Important conversations on this World AIDS Day coming up. But first this, let's talk politics. Former President Barack Obama is heading back to Georgia for one more 2020 campaign stop. President Obama will rally voters tonight for Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock before his run election on Tuesday. We have two reports coming from WABE Sam Greenglass. A month ago, Obama kicked off his midterm travel schedule with a rally near the Atlanta airport for Warnock and other Georgia Democrats. Now, Warnock is the last one standing. To beat Republican Herschel Walker, Warnock needs to get supporters back to the polls one more time and persuade voters who stayed home in November. The turnout rate for the November election fell from 2018, especially among black and Hispanic voters. Democrats want to replicate Obama's coalition of voters. He's especially potent in an era where President Biden's approval ratings are underwater in Georgia. Former President Trump, meanwhile, has endorsed Walker, but is reportedly staying away from Georgia before the runoff. Meanwhile, Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker, that Sam was talking about, is back on the campaign trail this week after several days without public events over the Thanksgiving holiday. Now Sam has this report from Dalton. Inside a community rec center here, Walker rallied a small lunchtime crowd of voters. Walker's campaign has tried to focus on Senator Raphael Warnock's ties to Washington Democrats. But Walker often veers from that message, devoting as much time to criticizing trans people in sports and the military as talking about inflation. We may need to get to leaders in Washington that say, if you don't like the rules of the United States of America, you can leave. We're not going to keep you here. That's what we need right now. Walker is currently in the news over a state election board complaint, alleging Walker's primary residence is in Texas. And on Wednesday, 10 Georgia rabbis wrote an open letter asking Walker to respond to former President Trump's recent meal with a white nationalist and Holocaust denier. Walker hasn't commented on either topic and hasn't taken questions from reporters on the trail in weeks. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. And the head of Georgia's Republican Party cannot use the same lawyers as 10 others who are under scrutiny by the Fulton County Special Grand Jury investigating, yes, 2020 election meddling. Susanna Capaluto reports a judge ruled there could be a conflict of interest. Georgia GOP Chair David Schaefer is one of 11 fake electors under investigation by the Special Grand Jury. They were all represented by two lawyers who are on the state GOP payroll. Fulton County prosecutors argued that representation could be unethical and presents a conflict of interest. Now, Judge Robert McBurney has ruled that the lawyers need to either represent the 10 electors or the party chair. That's because, he said, Schaefer is not just an elector. He allegedly helped organize the plan to present an alternate GOP slate for Trump after Joe Biden won Georgia. McBurney wrote there might be a, quote, imbalance to potential exposure of criminal liability. 
Susanna Capaluto, WABE News. The CDC is distributing more than $3 billion to state and local health departments across the country, and that includes right here in Georgia. The agency says the funding is meant to strengthen the public health system as a nation could possibly brace for another Christmas holiday amid the pandemic. Jess Mador has that story. As part of the initial award, the Georgia Department of Public Health is on track to receive nearly $84 million, plus another more than $10 million is heading to the Fulton County Board of Health over the next five years. News of the funding comes as COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations rise in Georgia. This week, DPH is reporting more than 6,700 new confirmed cases and 674 people are hospitalized for COVID-19. The case numbers are likely an undercount since so many people are testing at home. Health officials are watching for additional surges over the Christmas holidays, and they're again urging Georgians to get vaccinated and boosted to prevent severe disease. Jess Mador, WABE News. Finally, if you bought your SEC championship tickets from somebody you'd never met before, but you met them online, they said, meet me here under streetlight, and they were dressed in a trench coat, more than likely those tickets are not real. Georgia's Attorney General's warning of scams surrounding football tickets for the SEC championship game right here in Atlanta, as we hear from Alex Helmick. The game features the top-ranked Georgia Bulldogs against LSU, and it's sold out, so fans would have to venture into the secondary market. The Attorney General's office said in a statement to only buy from reputable sites that offer fraud protection. Ticket brokers are required to register in the state of Georgia, and licensed brokers can be found at the Secretary of State's website. Tickets on some of those sites are running in the $150 per range ticket in the cheap seats. Last year, the Better Business Bureau reported that it received more than 15,000 complaints about the ticketing process for the SEC championship, and that included scores of people being scammed. Alex Helmick, WAB News. <laughs> Secondary market. That's funny. Don't do it, folks. Now, as mentioned, it is World AIDS Day. And with Georgia having some of the highest HIV rates nationwide, local health officials are urging those sexually active to get tested. That means for everyone. They say it's invaluable to know your status. Most counties here in Georgia offer free testing. Now, after the break, we begin today's special programming for World AIDS Day. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE here in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. This year, we're going to look at another year, 1982. The ABC News program Nightline devoted a special broadcast about AIDS. One of the guests was Dr. James Kern. He was at that time leading a CDC task force. Dr. Kern, what do we know now about AIDS that perhaps we didn't know 18 months ago? Well, Ted, the, uh, unfortunately, the cause of AIDS remains unknown. But uh, over the past year and a half, when the first cases were investigated, a large amount has been learned about the epidemiologic characteristics of the AIDS cases. And the overwhelming evidence now of the occurrence of this very dramatic illness in these seemingly uh, uh, different groups of people uh, suggests that it probably is caused by an infectious transmissible agent. Now, Dr. Kern would later join Emory University and is considered a pioneer in HIV-AIDS prevention. And those first AIDS cases reported in the United States was actually back in June of 1981. And we know that there's been so much progress, but there are still systemic challenges. And since this program began back in 2015, we've devoted several entire segments to HIV-AIDS. And so on this World AIDS Day, we continue to do that. Now, the United Nations has a call to action to end the what they call inequities, which are blocking progress towards stopping the pandemic and eradicating the virus. In fact, 
They have promised to end AIDS by 2030. But what about here in the United States? Vincent Guillermo Ramos is the dean of the Duke University School of Nursing and vice chancellor for nursing affairs. He has been talking about this. He has been an expert in this. He has been a champion for ways to we can we can better approach this. And he joins me now. Dean, welcome. Thank you, Rose, for having me on today. It's great to be here. You know, as we played that news clip from 1982, when you think about where we are now as a nation regarding combating HIV AIDS, what are your your overall reflections on progress here in the United States? So, Rose, what a great question. You know, I think uh, what really struck me is how far we've come. The truth is that today we have all of the science, all the tools. We know what we need to do to end HIV in our country starting with President Obama, but it continued with President Trump and now with President Biden, we've had an ending the HIV epidemic initiative in our country. And we too, as a country, are trying to end HIV by 2030. I think the two places where we have done uh, sort of the most work and there's been the greatest progress Mm -hmm. has really been around prevention Mm -hmm. and having uh, a very effective HIV prevention pill and now an injection that actually will prevent people from acquiring HIV if they come into contact with HIV. And we also have really effective treatment. HIV today in most developed countries like ours, for most people, it's a chronic condition that actually, if they are receiving their medication, if they're virally suppressed, which means that the virus is being kept at a level that it's not detectable, Mm -hmm. they can have a normal life trajectory and being virally suppressed, and this is probably one of the most important things I'm going to share, Rose, it means that they don't have any concerns about forward transmission. Mm-hmm. Being undetectable means that you cannot pass the virus to other people. That's fantastic. Dean, do you think folks know this? I mean, we, they know, oh, yeah, we've made strides in treatment. But do you think most folks know this? Because even when they, if you get this diagnosis, for some populations, they still think, oh, I, I have a death sentence. I hate using that narrative, but that's what folks use. There seems to be a disconnect in still getting the word out about that this doesn't have to be the case. I think that's such a great point, Rose. And and to be honest, I think that what we know is that despite all of our progress, and I was very intentional about starting with all the success, it's still true that today we have roughly 35,000 new HIV infections each year. Mm -hmm. And that number has been pretty much the same for the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. And if you think about our goal of getting to ending the epidemic by 2030, we're not going to reach that if we don't do something different. And a big part of that is helping people to be aware that there are prevention and treatment tools. And, you know, what kind of has been weighing on me heavily, Rose, and all of us as a country, is that we know that the new infections, they cluster in certain communities. Mm -hmm. We're not doing enough to reach uh, people of color, particularly in the South, uh, particularly African-American, Black, Latino, also sexual minorities, so both young people who are having men who have sex with men, mm-hmm. as well as individuals who identify as transgender, and people who use drugs. We need to do more. Those communities don't know enough about some of the prevention and treatment, and we're reaching them too late uh, when they w- will not benefit as uh, as much as if we had reached them uh, sort of earlier. You know, I remember in, in grade school learning about what we then called STDs. Now we call them STIs. And, you know, you had to you had the little health book and they had the little pictures there. You said we're not reaching them early enough. So is this something that we have to start talking with? And again, you know, when we, and I, you, know you know where I'm going, folks. Well, you can't raise my kids. Tell me how to raise my kids. Do we need to start? How early should we start then talking about this to folks? So, Rose, we need to start really very early. You know, most young people in our country, they have sexual debut, the first sexual experience during high school, around the age of 17. That's too late to start talking about this. We need to start early during middle school, but certainly before high school, and really wrapping our heads around the fact that, you know, we see not only HIV, there's about 45,000 young people living with HIV in our country, mm-hmm. 3 million across the world, but we see unprecedented sexually transmitted infections. There's about 20 million new infections mm-hmm. each year, and half of those are in young people. As a country, we've got to bolster uh, sort of parents' comfort in really addressing these issues. And we need to make sure that parents know about the available resources. People do not have to acquire HIV today. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's probably, Rose, four things that I would say 
are part of the solutions. Mm -hmm. You know, one, we've got to do better in terms of our workforce and really leveraging our entire workforce. And what I mean by that is that we've got lots of people in our country who actually can contribute to ending the HIV AIDS epidemic. It's not just healthcare providers, mm -hmm. although they certainly are part of it. It's all of us, it's community members, it's families, it's religious leaders. We also know that we've got to address head-on stigma. I was happy to hear mm -hmm. at the top of the show that really stigma, but not only stigma, racism, homophobia, mm -hmm. discrimination, all of the things that we know are plaguing and causing health disparities, to tackle those things head on. We also need to be mindful that it's important that we are thinking about making investments in our public health infrastructure. Mm -hmm. You know, in our country, when we think about government spending on health, less than 5% of the money is really being allocated to prevention. It was terrific to hear the story again on your show. They really highlighted some of the investments that are coming from the Biden-Harris administration. Mm -hmm. We need more of that. We have to prioritize keeping people healthy and not treating people when they're sick. So you talked about workforce, you talked about stigma, you talked about investment in public health. This is great. And then it goes back to, well, these continued systemic barriers. How do we, and maybe this is a political question. I know some folks don't like to get political, Dean, but is this a an issue that we can legislate ourselves out of? That maybe that needs to happen. Maybe their state, you know, state health departments need to say, look, we need more money from Washington so we can address this in our state. Is this something that we need laws on the books to address? I think absolutely. I think we need to ensure health equity. And what I would say, Rose, I'm going to take a step back and maybe frame that, um, you know, based on what I really believe the issue is. We've made lots of progress. We've tended to sort of have a nail and a hammer approach where we have a specific issue and we develop a nail for that issue. Mm -hmm. But honestly, what's driving unhealthy outcomes, HIV and other in our country, are really the social conditions that people live in. Mm -hmm. And that until as a country, we get serious about addressing those social conditions. They account for about 80% of the variability in whether you have a health condition or not, including HIV poverty, access to education, health insurance, housing, food, a healthcare provider. Until we start dealing with those issues and make serious investments in improving the social conditions, particularly for people who are the most marginalized, we're not gonna get there for HIV or any of the other chronic health conditions that we face as a country. Well, then let's, let's then dissect that further because when we come in and we talk about that the UN says, hey, we wanna eradicate AIDS by 2030, Obviously, the U.S. is a superpower, a super nation. But based on what you've just said, and, and believe you me, other folks have said this. I know our listeners, this is not new to them. How can, is that something we can do that's a realistic goal here in the U.S.? But to also, well, you know, no, Rose, it's interesting because when you look at the data, we see that there have been improvements in some communities more so than others. And so if we can have those improvements, so for example, when you think about white MSM, the rates of new infections among white men who have sex with men, that has gone down dramatically, much more so than that rate for African-American, Black, or Latino. We can do this. There are countries in the world, for example, Botswana, you might say, well, how is it that Botswana was able to achieve its what we call 95-95-95 goals? 95% of people who are living with HIV are aware of that. 95% of those people are engaged in treatment. And 95% of those people are virally suppressed. If Botswana can do it, they've prioritized this. It's been all hands on deck. The United States can do it. We just got to get clear about our commitments to the social conditions, the inequities that are really plaguing health broadly, including HIV. I have a question from a listener who says, well, if, you're, if you're a doctor, if the dean, well, you're Dr. Dean, if the dean is talking about reaching folks in middle school, should we even start earlier than that? I don't know how early you want to be, but I mean, you know. <laughs> I think truth be told, Rose, in my view, you know, I, I prioritize, I do family-based interventions. I'm a nurse practitioner. Mm -hmm. I work with families my entire life. I was in clinic yesterday with young people who are living with HIV. And the truth is, uh, I think parents and broadly parents, adult primary caregivers, they need to start having conversations as early as possible, developmentally appropriate conversations, starting to open up those avenues where parents can really be quite candid and express uh, their views and hear from their children about what they need in terms of guidance. Well, Dean, if 2030, I mean, if that's not a realistic goal, but 
if we want to say we want to set some metrics to gauge the success of meeting some type of goal, what does that look like? Is it that night that ninety ninety five that you talked about with Botswana? What what is reasonable for the U.S.? Well, you know, it's interesting, Rose, because we actually have a goal by twenty thirty that we'll have fewer than three thousand new infections per year. It's part of the ending the HIV epidemic. I want to challenge us, though, as a country, because I think that 3,000 is 3,000 too many. I think that the truth is that we can eradicate HIV by using the tools that we have. And for me, uh, we can do it. We just need to change our approach. We have to double down and get serious about ending HIV in our country. So, so Dean, I want to make sure we understand you, because if we're hearing now that we're talking about approximately maybe 34, 35,000 new HIV infections in the U.S. And you're saying by 2030, get that down to 3,000? Absolutely. And so I think that's really what I'm highlighting. The 3,000 is the government goal. Mm -hmm. I think that we are trying to reimagine what we need to do, changes in our workforce. We now have new treatments and new prevention technologies that are long acting. We have injectable antiretrovirals that actually are every 60 days. You don't need to do once a day dosing of a pill. We need to reduce stigma and get tools out to reach people. And we've got to make sure that we're leveraging communities cross sector, which means not just healthcare providers like me, mm-hmm. but you know all members, private corporations, media, radio, uh, religious and sort of uh, faith-based communities. Mm-hmm. We need all hands on deck. We, we can do this, Rose. I believe that. And I have another question from a listener that has a question about treatment. And it says, Rose, the treatments have gotten better, but are they affordable? Does Medicaid pay for treatments for folks who can't afford it? Absolutely. So the treatments are definitely accessible. Uh, They can be paid for by Medicaid, by Medicare. And there's actually a program called ADAP, which is the AIDS Drug Assistance Program. And if you're not not eligible uh, through Medicaid or Medicare, let's say that you have private insurance or no insurance, you can access the HIV medications through ADAP through your state. And so the medications are there. The question is, how do we help people to get linked to healthcare providers who can actually provide them with the ongoing treatment that they need. Dean, I'm curious, because you said you had just spoke, had some conversations with some young folks. Um, what are those conversations like? What questions do they have for you? Or what questions do you ask them in terms of their awareness prior, if, if they've been diagnosed with, with, with HIV? What are you hearing from them? So, Rosie, that's such a great question. I love going to clinic. I'm a nurse practitioner. I specialize in caring for people who are young, living with HIV or at risk. And what I hear from them is they wish they would have had this information. Mm. They wish that their families, in particular their parents, would have discussed these topics. They wish that a healthcare provider would have introduced how they could protect themselves and that they had had more access to information to make better decisions about their health and well-being. I think today, the kinds of things that I hear are how will I grow up and pursue my life's dreams and aspirations as a young person living with HIV? And part of my job is to help them to see that yes, they are a person living with HIV, but they can actually have a normal life if they are able to suppress the virus Mm. and actually stay engaged in their treatment and care. And when you tell them that, do you see a change in their their attitude, their approach? Do you even see by looking at them and their expression that, okay, I'm glad to get this type of information? That has to make you feel pretty good. Makes me feel fantastic. I think, you know, initially, Rose, they don't always believe me at the start. But as time passes and they get older and they get older and eventually we tell them that they're phasing out of the program because they're too old to be in the adolescent program. It's time to move forward. They realize that they can, in fact, live with HIV and have a really meaningful life. What matters, though, and this is something that I don't want to under sort of underestimate is that they need to have a community of support. And so communities that historically have not been embracing, that have not been able to reduce stigma, that have not fostered acceptance, we gotta do better to let people know who are living with HIV, that we love them, that we support them, and that we care about their well-being. Dean, why do you do this work? How did you get involved in it? I got involved in this work because I grew up in the South Bronx, and in my community, there were many people who were impacted in the 80s Mm -hmm. and 90s by HIV, and uh, I just saw too many young people who were having negative sexual and reproductive health outcomes. And, you know, Rose, to be uh, perfectly candid with your, you know, your viewers, you know, I'm somebody who's Latino. I come from the South Bronx. I'm also somebody who identifies as a gay man, Mm -hmm. and I just think my community has been impacted very negatively. And so I've committed my life to supporting families. And, uh, and it's what I it's what I do. It's I love it. It's my passion. 
You have said the many tools and resources we have are not being utilized correctly. So I can't ask you enough again to let listeners know how you feel in terms of in this nation. We have the resources. We have the tools. We need to utilize them correctly, as you say. And again, where do we begin? Thank you, Rose. We absolutely have the tools. We just need the will from uh, our government and from our society. We can do this. Dean Vincent Galamo Ramos is the dean of the Duke University School of Nursing and vice chancellor from, for nursing affairs. Proudly hails from the Bronx. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> so you are a Yankees fan? I'm a Yankees fan. I grew up closer at 153rd in the concourse. <laughs> who's, your fav- who's your favorite all-time Yankee? To be honest, I would say Derek Cheater. Ah, my, number my two. Favorite. Yeah, number two. <laughs> He's mine, too. Dean, thank you so much for leading today's special for World AIDS Day. We really appreciate you taking the time, good information. I got a lot of emails, folks, that want to reach out to you. I'm like, okay, hold on. We'll, we'll get it to them. Thank you so much, Dean. Thank you, Rose. Thank you. Take good care. Appreciate being on. You, too. Closer Look continues in just a moment with this special edition, Recognizing World AIDS Day. I want to revisit a conversation from earlier this year featuring Tammy Kinney, founder of Rural Women in Action and HIV AIDS activist she is as well. And she joined us on what was then National HIV Testing Day and recalled the stigma and lack of information around her 1987 diagnosis. As a woman that is diagnosed well, let me say living and thriving with HIV. Some calls it advanced HIV. My initial diagnosis was in 1987. So I can remember lack of education, lack of resources, doctors telling black women, black men, um, same gender loving individuals that it was a death sentence mm-hmm. and with me with my personal experience also addicted to drugs that's what I thought mm-hmm. Wow! so life just passed me by um, I was truly uneducated mm-hmm. but when I began to understand and to be around a group of individuals and other women that were actually doing powerful things. In my mind, I wanted to be like them. And I had this internal stigma because people were saying that men and women were going to die and seemed like it was just focused on just a set of group of people. Mm-hmm. And see, back then, you know, we weren't talking about addiction and mental health and HIV and the other comorbidities of health. We weren't talking about that. Mm-hmm. We were basically people were telling us that we were not going to make it. Tammy also talked about the day of her actual diagnosis and coming around to better understanding and accepting. When the doctor told me it looked like he was about to cry. I was just there. I was I was numb. And the first person that I called was my mom. No, I called my sister. My sister called my mom. And it seemed like they was up there like they had took a jet. And it was there at Grady Hospital here in Atlanta. And, but my addiction, lack of education and awareness and my mental health and, I, and I'm going to say illness, mm-hmm. it didn't allow me to focus on the HIV. Even though the doctor gave me resources where to go, I didn't have, I had a support system with my family, but I didn't have an outside support system because mm-hmm. I really didn't know where to go. So the only thing focused in my mind was I was actually diagnosed with an AIDS diagnosis, Mm -hmm. but I am the evidence (laughs) that I'm still here. As you told more people, and I don't know what that that progress was like, that process was like, but did people, did you feel like folks were judging you? I judged myself, Mm -hmm. and I had internal stigma. 
and it didn't allow me to disclose my status in the 80s mm-hmm. and actually in the 90s. And I got hooked up. I want to say hooked up because at that time that was my language. Mm-hmm. But I was involved with a group of ladies in Atlanta that were okay with their status. And like I said earlier, I wanted to be okay with mine. And my mind kept going back to the day that I was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. You remember that date? I do. What was the date? It was October the 17th, 1987. Wow. And I will be celebrating this year. <laughs> so, but, and I was more, I was more worried about, am I going to survive the addiction? Mm-hmm. And by grace and gratefully, I had a team of doctors that embraced me. And that's important. From back in June, a conversation with Tammy Kinney, an HIV AIDS activist and the founder of Rural Women in Action. Now, when we come back, I'll be joined with Dr. Bambi Gaddis as we continue this special edition of Closer Look on World AIDS Day. Stay with us. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta as we bring you a special coverage today marking World AIDS Day. And as I talked about it earlier with the dean, the latest estimates from the CDC, approximately maybe 34,800, maybe 35,000 new HIV infections occurred in the U.S. This was back in 2019. Now, these annual infections infections in the U.S. have been reduced by more than two-thirds since the height of the epidemic in the mid-1980s. Keep that in mind. That is significant. But think about this. Think about how that number could be decreased even more, especially if more folks would get early testing and they knew about prevention. But also stigma, as we discussed earlier, plays a big part of this. Well, I am honored to be joined today by Dr. Bambi Gaddis as we continue to discuss World AIDS Day. And Dr. Gaddis, I want to begin by saying thank you. But I got to begin here because you were noted as someone who, and I'm going to quote here, who's quote, been in the trenches of addressing sexual and health and wellness and particularly focused on HIV and AIDS, been in the trenches. You heard that discussion I had with Tammy Kinney. You've heard those type of conversations for a long time. Well, I'll tell you, she was an inspiration in listening to her. Uh, You can tell she is a woman who was transformed. (laughs) Uh, from uh, one person to another. And and really what she exemplified in her commentary was what does it look like when people, uh, despite what brought them into the HIV space, when they are embraced, when they uh, confront uh, internally and externally those things that tell them they are not worthy. Mm-hmm. And we should note that uh, Dr. Gaddis is also the chief executive officer at the South Carolina HIV Council. Um, I am former. Former. Actually. Okay. Our apologies. Yeah, so. for 27 years. Wow. Yes. When we had Tammy on back then, back in June, and I got a lot of emails of folks saying, wow, Rose, I, 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 did, I didn't know that someone from the 80s was possibly even still living um, after contracting the virus back in the 80s. I want you to take our listeners back to when you first started working in this space and when you first heard about this infection, this HIV, this thing we called HIV and AIDS. And what was that like for you? So I think I'm dating myself. It's okay. I, I date sharing, myself my, all the time. <laughs> I was sharing with one of your uh, producers, uh, Ms. Hudson, that I turned 67 uh, in September. And when I started working in HIV, uh, I was a doctoral student at the University of South Carolina. I met a woman by the name of Diana Diana. Uh, We sat across the room from one another at a a health department training. I had never heard of this thing called HIV. Hmm. Um, uh, My area of training is human sexuality and family life education. And so in that space, I said, well, let me learn more. And in, in doing so, I met her. And she looked across the table after the training and she said, look, you know, I I have a hair salon, you know, I I do women's hair and and I'm trying to give women information about HIV. Will you be my vice president of uh, youth services? And I was (laughs) like, 
yeah, sure, I'll be that. <laughs> and so for 15 years, she and I went into the trenches from 1985 wow. up until uh, the, the 90s, 94, 92, 93, um, working in Black communities, primarily rural communities. Um, I'm a recovering northerner. Mm. I heard you talking to Doc, uh, Dr. Ramos, yeah. Guillermo Ramos earlier. Um, I was born in upstate New York and was raised in New Jersey, but my roots are uh, at Tuskegee, ah. um, uh, brought me to the South. Wow. And so I can tell you that that reality check hmm. uh, that I still live in, in a, in a Southern state, uh, yeah. South Carolina, uh, where we still, despite innovation and despite uh, the, the, influx of new blood into the field, we still struggling with some of the traditional stigmas, prejudices, and failures to address gender diversity. Let's tackle that stigma, that word. And you think about how much progress we've made since the 80s. And everyone I talk to, and I've talked about this a lot in my career as a journalist, and they say, Rose, how do we address stigma? How do we begin changing the messaging, the narrative around not only before we even get to someone being diagnosed, but also giving them the mindset and the desire for for proactive measures against contracting the virus? Because that's a big part of it, too. Well, you you know, we're product. My my dad used to tell me we're products of our environment. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult, it is a struggle to fight against something that's fighting against you. So part of, to your question, telling the truth and the the decision to stop telling lies Hmm. is the first step. Um, uh, There's misinformation. That's where someone tells you something and you interpret it and you think you know, you know, so that's why it's critical that we ask people, what did you think I said to you? Mm -hmm. So they can give it back to us and we can clarify. But when it's disinformation, Mm -hmm. when it's a lie, when it's constructed in a way that's designed to force people to live in a certain space, that's when it becomes dangerous. And you and I both know that the faith community and, and trying to get the faith community on board just in terms of awareness it's taken some time. There's been some progress, but particularly when we talk about faith communities embedded in black and brown communities, I've said we've got some progress that's been made, but I want to hear from you how much progress and again, where do we begin to strengthen that? And because folks will tell you this, <laughs> you, you know where I'm going, you know, mm-hmm. folks will tell you, well, we have to meet people where they are. And then some folks will say, well, if we're asking the faith community to be involved in, you got to understand Rose that they're going to come from a preaching. Some of them, they're going to come from a a path of preaching and then they come with the Bible. And then there's a whole lot of optics involved in that. Ooh, that that's a show in and of itself. Oh yeah. So so let me, so let me just say a, a, a few brief comments. Number one, all church, all faith communities are not oppositional. It's not that they don't want to do the work. It's that they don't know how. Hmm. And so part of my role and one of the things I've been blessed to do in the last several years is be part of the HIV Clinical Trials Network uh, Faith Ambassador Corps. Mm-hmm. And part of our charge is to pr- create opportunities for not just faith leaders and lay leaders, but community, community activists, and others and families to reimagine one or well, first first accept that HIV is still alive and well. Mm-hmm. And then number two, to reimagine what would it look like if we were more actively involved in stopping or slowing down its spread. Mm-hmm. So the faith community, although I know many people who don't believe they believe we're wasting our time mm-hmm. dealing really? with the clergy, but I choose and don't believe it. You know, I believe that we're like the Marines. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking for a few good men or women. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes strategically, we have to identify, recruit, train, and engage clergy and and faith leaders who see the call, who want to do something but don't know how, 
Mm-hmm. And then to those who are, are coming from a set of theologies that clearly don't reflect the teachings that we of 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 whoever we worship mm-hmm. in my case I'm a Christian what what Christ calls upon us to do as people who love one another then sometimes we have to leave them to their own devices mm-hmm. and work with those who are ready to transform so a faith leader comes to you and says Dr. Gaddis I'm ready to be part our our congregation our house of worship is ready to be part of the solution. And they say, Mm -hmm. I don't know where to begin. And then what do you do? I know there's no template that you just throw at them and say, well, actually, you know, is there a template? Part part of the work I did with um, the uh, South Carolina HIV council, right? Wellness center is we had a $6 million appropriation from the legislature. And over a period of six years, we directly funded faith communities who submitted grants and were ready, willing, and able, as we call them. The state them. gave y'all funding. Yes. Now, now, mind you, this is, again, part of the discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as we're in a voting season, we cannot be uh, people of color, uh, disenfranchised communities who sit back and say somebody else ought to do it. We need to know who our legislators are. We need to know who our county and city representatives are. We need to develop relationships with those individuals and and make them aware of what's happening. And and there are those who will get it. And once we know they get it, you know, someone I, I admired and a mentor said to me, he sat in the House of Representatives, he said, one, do you know who they are? Mm-hmm. Two, Do they know you when they see you? Mm -hmm. Number three, what have they done for you lately? And if they haven't done anything for you lately, you don't have a relationship. So the whole key to this is developing, seeking uh, relationships like they tell us in Proverbs 2. Seek it as if it were silver. Seek it with a sense of desperation. Get relationships with people who fund the programs that we need to get in our community. We saw the faith community come together in terms of messaging about the COVID-19 vaccine. We saw this holistic approach. And you look at that and you say, wow, wouldn't it have been great if we would have had that in the early years of the AIDS epidemic? Well, what we're doing, what you know, part of our mission as HVTN, what was covid ambassador, faith ambassadors, we're trying to bridge. And and so one of the things we we can do with faith communities is focus on health disparities. Hmm. You know, sometimes we want to go gun ho and come in, but, uh, uh, you know, all in the clergy's face about HIV, and I get it. Mm-hmm. But the questions I ask are, to your uh, previous question is, do you have a care team? Do you have a health and wellness ministry at your church? Ah. If that pastor says to me they have a health and wellness ministry, that is the beginning. Because now I can say, what kind of health disparities have you all addressed? What kind of community outreach have you all done? Okay, well, then I have a training I can offer you Mm -hmm. with your members. And what I encourage them to do is partner with other churches or other faith communities. Get get three or four people from their health ministry to come to a place and we will train them to introduce them to what is it like to be a care team ministry that includes a focus on HIV. Mm-hmm. And we have, through Project Faith, fostering AIDS initiatives at Heal, we saw transformative work mm-hmm. by clergy, by um, uh, their parishioners, who were, were, were driven to make a difference for people living with HIV beyond testing. The dean and I talked about, as a, and also for World AIDS Day, and then the United Nations saying, look, we have this 2030 goal <laughs> of, <laughs> I think you know where I'm going, of eradicating mm-hmm. this. The U.S., of course, is a part of that. It, first of all, your reaction to that 2030 goal from a global initiative well, this is think? not the first time we've set a goal, mm-hmm. um, you know, and certainly I, I seek to be optimistic, but there are some things that we have yet at globally and domestically 
to address. Mm -hmm. You've already spoken to one of them. Stigma, a homophobia, um, failure to acknowledge the existence of same gender loving non-binary people. Mm-hmm. And until we address those things, meeting the goals become even more challenging because some of the things that Dr. Ramos discussed mm-hmm. about building availability, enhancing quality of services, mm-hmm. ensuring access cannot occur, especially if you have physicians who are not ready, willing, and able to receive the diverse community that they will be called upon to treat, Hmm. which includes transgender communities. We must be, that means that uh, institutions of higher learning have to be ready, willing, and able to look at their policies around same gender loving people on their campus. You know, it's interesting because there are some nations in Africa where the mentality around HIV AIDS has been normalized. And just, you know, in considering the history there, you know, children there are educated about HIV AIDS at an early age and taught how to be HIV free. And for years, we've also heard that in some nations in in Africa where, you know, you you can be killed for being gay. But so you think of some of these nations in Africa where they're talking to kids at a very early age. I'm going to ask you this, the same thing I asked the dean. Should we be doing that here? Absolutely. Well, part of it is related to your previous observation about how we responded to COVID. Mm -hmm. One of the things that drove the the innovation, it wasn't that we weren't studying COVID. And it wasn't that African-Americans were not spearheading much of the research. But what the complication was, is that they were struggling for funding to advance the research. COVID in its in its in its magnitude, we had so many deaths premature deaths, unanticipated deaths, deaths that did not have to occur, mm-hmm. that we had no other choice but to, to, to focus on it. What Africa has sustained as far as death and destruction and loss is so, uh, has been so um, um, monumental that they have had to Say, how do we save the next generation of our children? We, when you go to a school in Africa and see a red ribbon on the side of the side of the school, you mm-hmm. know they've been impacted and they they have committed themselves. But the United States mm-hmm. has yet to imagine the sense of loss like we've had in COVID mm-hmm. from HIV. So to 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 too many of us. It's an insignificant issue. They think HIV has gone away. They think people like us have it handled. Mm. They think that the sense of urgency is over and it isn't, especially when in closure, you have innovations like pre-exposure prophylaxis where people can take the other blue pill once a day and almost eliminate their likelihood of of acquiring HIV, having being HIV free, free, despite uh, what, you know, regardless, I should say, Mm -hmm. of our sexual desires, regardless of our, you know, marital status, having children with HIV, babies that will be HIV free because Mm -hmm. of PrEP, and to have so many people not know about it. I have a comment from a listener that says, Rose, I live in a rural part of Georgia, quote, ain't no way my pastor talking about this. Absolutely. And so the question is, you know, I'll I'll use an example very quickly. You know, I I was attending a church where the pastor was making commentary about, I'll use, not in this way, but I'll use the term Adam and Steve and this, that, and the other, right? It wasn't that way, but they were making it clear where their limits and lines of demarcation were. And I'm asked for a meeting with my pastor. Hmm. And, and we had a, 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 a important conversation that had to be had. I said, are you aware that, and that people knew what I do. Mm-hmm. I said, I need you to know that people are sitting in your pews inboxing me. Mm-hmm. I want you to know that people in your pews are asking me what I think about what you're saying. What do you want me to tell them? And so wow. I think... To, your, to the caller or to the listener's statement, 
sometimes we have to do internal work and ask ourselves, do we have the courage to approach our leaders of faith and ask them? And guess what? Sometimes we may have to decide based upon our allegiance. Is that the place I should be seeking God? If, if they're espousing hatred, if they're espousing homophobia, if they're saying that people that 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 who God made, because he looks after all of us, if the people that God made have all these things wrong with them that they need to be purged of, and I don't believe that, mm -hmm. then how can I, you know, I may have to decide, is this the space do I need to be in? Or am I just going to follow family tradition with my home church mm -hmm. when my home church is not fulfilling the need that I have to move closer to the to the to the God, to the to the entity that fulfills me? Is being supportive. Faith communities being supportive of the vulnerable populations when it comes to HIV AIDS, I, is I'm, that key I, to getting that number, that 34,000 new infections rate down to 3,000 by 2030? I, I look at it like the Marines. Mm. We're looking for a few good men and women. If we are, if, if, if we, the more faith communities we have engaging in transparent and truthful questions, mm. then the more likely we are to meet our goal. And, and I typically ask clergy when, when, when they're in a space of judgment or they they need a space of, of, of reflection. I ask them the following questions, not including a time when you were, may have been forced to have sexual uh, relations without your permission. Mm -hmm. One, how old were you? Mm -hmm. Number two, where were you? Number three, were you married or single and engaged doesn't count? Number four, did you use any form of protection for for to protect against STDs or pregnancy at the time? And, and then finally, what could anybody have said to you at that time and place with that person to make you just say no, which is what you're telling your parishioners and what your parents told you. Mm -hmm. And this is what I found. Most of us, the first time we had sexual uh, intimacy or sex at the first, our first decision to do it, mm -hmm. we were teenagers. Mm -hmm. Number two, God knows where we were and who, and, and who we were with. The older people are, they say the barn, the car. Nowadays, kids say something else. Mm -hmm. We were not married, nor were we engaged. We, most people use no form of protection. And if they did, it was a condom. And number five, nothing could have stopped them. Hmm. So here's my point. Why are we still preaching messages that we didn't abide by, our parents didn't abide by, and the children, the young people of a, today have more complications and, and things that pull them into vulnerable risk. Hmm. And we're still preaching the same thing. Dr. Bambi Gaddis. As we conclude this edition of Closer Look on World AIDS Day, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you for covering the topic. I appreciate it. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org slash election 2024.